breaking a leg. Hello and welcome to uh, another surprise bonus edition of my podcast, Breaking a Leg, which is about the process of putting together a stand-up comedy show that I performed in December 2015. And the idea of the podcast was for me to sort of uh, explain what I was doing towards the creative process of putting together a brand new full-length stand-up show whilst I was actually in the process of doing it. The show is, is sometime in the past now, um, it's 2016, February to be precise, and so the show was some time ago. The reason I'm doing this, and I might do a few more, um, is just to sort of do a few updates. So first thing is I was hoping to get a film of the show up online by January, which hasn't actually happened, but I have seen the first rough cut of the, of the film and uh, given some feedback on that. Um, and hopefully that's going to be up soon. When that does go up, I might do another episode of this. And the other bit of update is that um, about a month ago, in mid-January, we had a conference uh, at the University of Kent uh, called Comedy on Stage and Page, uh, which was uh, to do with the British Standard Comedy Archive, which we've established at the university, and also the British Cartoon Archive, which has been at the university since the 1970s. And it was a great two-day event, and one of the things that happened in this event was that I gave a paper on the whole process of putting together my show. Uh, so I thought what I would do is, I, I, most of this podcast will be dedicated to a recording of that academic conference paper. Uh, so here it is now. Breaking a leg. Hello, it's nice to be back. Um, I'm going to talk to you about a project I've been doing, uh, and and this is a practice research. If you don't know what the concept of practice research is, the idea is that with conventional academic research, you read books and do archives and primary research and that kind of thing, and you write things about it. With practice research, the idea is that you can make creative work and reflect on that, and that the process of the creative act helps you to understand the things that you're looking at. Uh, and that's what, to, to, to an extent, all of us today in this panel are talking about. So this project was about trying... It, it relates to the archive, really, and it relates to the idea of how do you document performance, how do you archive performance. So a book written about um, documenting live performance, uh, published in 2006 by Matthew Reason, he, he says one of the most prominent and recurring definitions of live performance is that it's fundamentally ephemeral. It's there and, it, and then it goes. And I think you could say that that's... I think that's, that's very strongly the case with stand-up. I, mean, it's very, I remember the first time I met Ivor uh, back in the 80s, uh, him saying to me that it's about being in the moment, and you, can't, you can see it on telly, but you can't really get it. You can't get the full experience without experiencing going to a live comedy show. Um, so the problem with that, as Matthew Reason identifies, given the transience of live art, the live performance archive or museum is more problematic as it, by definition, cannot contain actual performances. The thing itself is always absent. Anything that is remotely associated with a performance can belong in an archive, including material detailing the processes of creation, production and reception. And that's what I'm particularly interested in in my project, creation and production, like how is the thing made? 
And that's quite interesting in terms of stand-up because he says, you know, he, he uh, lists, I haven't quoted this, but he lists the kind of items that a live performance archive might contain. And it's very varied, the kind of things that you might collect. And that's the case with, with the stand-up archive. We've got all kinds of different things. But this is an indicative item. This is from Linda Smith, who, whose collection came to us, and that was the kick-starting point, really, for, for starting the archive. So this is a set list from April 2001. She was trying new material. She was actually road-testing new material, so it's like a preview gig, essentially, uh, downstairs at King's Head. And um, you, can, you can just about sort of make out that there are little points on there. That there are sort of headings, and then there are smaller points within it, and then written all over it are her handwritten notes. <coughs> but how does that relate to the performance itself? Well, here's one detail from that list. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you uh, a, a short clip uh, which represents... Art's a tricky business though, isn't it, really? I never let me, I'm a bit ha on happier ground with modern art because you just know it's rubbish. You don't have to wonder about it. You think, oh, it's, it's a pile of rubbish, isn't it? It's all right. It no, gives me no worries. But traditional art in a gallery is more problematic because you, you, see, you see the painting there and you think, how long do you have to wait in front of each painting? <laughs> what is the minimum amount of time without looking like an ignorant peasant who doesn't know what they're looking at? Right, so what you can see from that is basically that bit is covered by art, how long, minimum, four, four words. And yet, as we heard, you, you can't get the joke from just the words on the paper. You don't even know what the joke is. The joke has to be performed. And so what that means is there's a sort of problematic relationship between... Um, sorry, I just need to get the PowerPoint back. There we go. Problematic relationship between text and performance. It's not like a play. So to, to take another example, not from the archive, but from something else published. This is a book uh, called The Unpublished Lenny Bruce that was edited by Lenny Bruce's daughter and published in the 80s. So what she's done is she put notes from some gigs that he was doing in, in 1959. And I'm, I'll just show you a, a bit of detail from this. The, the whole thing is made up of this. So what it looks like, if you looked at that and you'd never heard any recordings of Lenny Bruce and you were trying to work out what his performance style would be like, you might say, well, he's a one-liner comic. That makes it look like he, he might just do one-liner after one-liner. You might say that he'd be a bit like Jimmy Carr or Milton Jones or something like that. But if you've ever heard Lenny Bruce, it's not what he was like at all. His early work was, was uh, uh, lots of different characters in sort of these almost like sketches performed by one person. As he went on, it was <coughs> improvisational and free-flowing and, and uh, free-form. But that's what his big notes look like. And my point is that you can't tell much about what Lenny Bruce's style was. And in some of them, you don't even know what the joke is. No use for a letter H in Italian alphabet. I have no idea what that's about. Uh, so the point is that unlike uh, straight theatre, where we... Okay, we don't know how the original production of Hamlet was performed, but at least we know what the words were, or what the majority of the words were. But with stand-up, the, the relationship between script and performance is much more loose. So what I was interested in was this idea of documenting how you get, essentially, from that script through to the, the moment of performance. And um, what Reason says in his book about documenting live performances, the ephemerality of live performance means that it must be consciously documented if not to disappear, with the primary preoccupation not the creation of new art, but ensuring the documentation of existing art. And I would disagree with that. 
Because I think that when stand-ups document themselves, as Linda Smith did there by keeping the set list and recording herself onto an audio cassette when she did the actual gig, uh, I think what, what it's about is something else. Reason acknowledges that sometimes uh, performers document themselves for reasons of what he calls extreme pragmatism. In other words, not for reasons to do with sort of trying to get to the soul of the performance, but just for pragmatic reasons. So it, it forced entertainment, essentially, what he says is that they need to make their work available after the show's finished because academics need to be interested in it because that's part of their audience and also audiences want to find out about it. So essentially for marketing purposes, they need to document their performance. And I, what I would say for comedians, they need to document their performance actually for different pragmatic reasons, which are to make the next performance better. Take yourself to see how it went, that kind of thing. Uh, so Lady Bruce, for example, in 1957, bought a tape recorder and uh, you know, a real-to-real tape recorder, and actually some of his um, private recordings have since been published and made available publicly. But uh, th according to this biography of him, uh, it meant that he could um, you know, go back over the routines and work out what's working, what's not working so well, where to cut bits and so on. Similarly, Steve Martin in the 70s bought a cassette recorder so that he, if he did something, if he ad-libbed something, that he could ad-lib the same thing in the next show. Uh, so, Go back to what, what practices research is. So Robin Nelson wrote a sort of definitive text on practices research in the arts, and he identifies three types of knowledge. The first is know, what he calls know that, so it's outsider knowledge. So it's something so we can come along and look at something like, let's say, stand-up comedy and make pronouncements about it in terms of spectatorship and interpretation from the outside. But then he also identified know-how, which he talks about that being insider knowledge. So it's, it's knowing how to do something. If you're a dancer, you have all this embodied knowledge, for example. If you're a comedian, you have the, the weight of experience that's taught you how to do certain things. But the crucial bit is this, know what, which he describes as the tacit made explicit through critical reflection. So it's like you take what you know about performance, what you know from experience and, and, and sort of living, doing that work, and you think about it and work out how it works and then articulate that. And what he says is the key method used to develop know what from know how is that of critical reflection, pausing, standing back and thinking about what you're doing. And that's what I was trying to do. I thought I'd put a show together and actually really think about that process of how, how, how it works, putting a show together. So this is not the first time, that obviously, that stand-up has been, or comedy, the process of making comedy has been reflected on. There was a book published in the mid-70s called Make and Laugh by two psychologists who, where they interviewed professional American comedy writers of quite you know, high standing about their work and how they work. There, there's things like the podcast, Stuart Goldsmith's Comedian Comedian podcast, where he interviews comedians. That's partly an inside and partly outside perspective in the sense that he's talking to them to, to, to get this, this knowledge. But both he and, and his interview interviewees are comedians, so there's a kind of inside perspective there. And you get things like Stuart Lee's writing about his own work, where he's writing about the process of making his show, so he'll have whole sections where there'll be a transcript of his show, and then there'll be footnotes explaining the, the decisions behind certain bits of the show. Although there, there are tongue-in-cheek elements to that, it should be said. Uh, so what, what I aimed to do with my project was to document the creative process from an inside perspective, uh, to focus on know-how and know-what, and to take an extreme pragmatic approach with the idea that it might be useful to other comedians. And actually, for me, if I go and do another show, then I can look back at what I did. And the key thing, really, is that uh, what I did 
uh, was that I would, rather than looking back on making a show, what I did was I uh, recorded my thoughts as I went along. So even, even in the early stages of putting the show together, I recorded my thoughts. So what I did with them was I made a podcast, which you can get on iTunes, and it's ridiculously niche. I can't think why anybody would be interested in it other than me. But people have listened to it, and, uh, and that's what it looks like. It's, it turns out it's quite easy to put a podcast together. It's quite easy technically. It's quite easy you know, to go online and, and get it set up so that it could be publicly available. So... Um, Yeah, um, so, the, so the idea was it was reflecting on that process while I was actually doing it. Uh, and then, yeah, that was recorded and put online, and I might do some more episodes. The last one was in December, but I might even do some sort of retrospective ones. And what it was in connection with was a show that I performed at the Gulbenkian Theatre on campus uh, in December, and that looked like this. Uh, and it was about, almost, it was coming up to the anniversary of me breaking my hip breaking my femur, and which it turns out is a very, very painful and debilitating thing to happen, and incredibly depressing, especially when you're reaching a landmark birthday and you're on crutches, and when you spend uh, a month on a Zimmer frame, you know, that's, yeah, uh, I thought that'd be quite an interesting thing to try and do a show about. Um, so, the first thing, the first point is that documentation ran through the project, so the show itself was documenting experience. There's a book about uh, autobiographical performance by Deirdre Hedden, and she's talking about the American performance artist Tim Miller, and she says that he makes clear that the act of remembering is precisely that, an act, which involves considering past events from the location of the present, such that the present provides a perspective from which to give past events a particular meaning. Uh, so basically what, what she's saying there is, it's, you know, okay, it's based on real experience, but of course you change things because you select what to talk about in the show. And it all started with this, my yellow Simpsons notebook. I got out of hospital and I was kind of fairly shell-shocked at the experience, not least because I spent eight days in a geriatric ward, which <laughs> ages you. And what I started doing was just writing for my own, you know, my processing the experience. I started writing my own notes and even drawing pictures. And these were interspersed with practical things like the, le the exercises from the physio, and questions that I had to ask the physio, you know, what, what I needed to quiz them about in terms of my recovery. But actually on this page you can see that I've already started to write jokes, or some of these bits are things that I wrote down, things that I, wrote, and I thought that would be funny in the show, and indeed they ended up being in the show. Um, and it's only once you get significantly into the notebook that I start acknowledging that I'm actually going to do something creative with this, because I start writing about the comedy ideas. But even then it's juxtaposed with more physio exercises. And I, I used some of this material in the show, so there was a PowerPoint in the show which partly helped me remember which bit of the show it was. And so I talked about my fellow patients and I used the sketches that I'd done of them uh, as, as part of uh, an introduction to each of them as I sort of talked about them in the show and said hopefully funny things about them. And that leads me to another thing I don't want to dwell on too much, which is an ethical issue. You talk about personal experiences. There's a notion in stand-up that you can talk about yourself, but you can't really talk about yourself without talking about other people. So obviously I changed the names of the guys I was in hospital with and, and the reason there's a post-it stuck over a bit of that drawing is just because it had his name on it, I didn't want the audience to be able to see that. Uh, so then I got to, to write the show. The first, one of the first things I did was I went through my Facebook uh, account. So for example, my kids, I've got two teenage kids and one time at the tea table, Tom said, considering you used to be a comedian, the way you fell over wasn't very funny, was it? <laughs> 
And his brother said there wasn't even a banana skin. Now that got over 70 likes. I thought, ooh, that could be something. And uh, for example, it's not, you know, this is a, not just me who does that. Sarah Millican uh, acknowledges that when she tweets jokes, she uses certain things to follow them and see how many shares they've had and that kind of thing. And if, if it has a certain uh, number of shares, then she'll try that in a tryout gig or a new material night. So that's the sort of uh, accepted methodology. But most of the stuff came from the notebook. And uh, I've, I've got some clips from the podcast where I talk about this and why, like, like how that works and why that was important. So I'll try and play you this. I don't like writing a script because if I write a script and then try and sort of learn it and perform it, it feels like I'm doing a play. It feels inauthentic and I can't get that kind of conversational style of delivery. It feels wrong. Um, and even with bullet points, as soon as you start typing something, it seems to give the words a greater sense of being sort of official and real. So it seems like you're actually writing a script somehow, even if you're making a note. Whereas if you scribble something down on paper, particularly because my handwriting is appalling, uh, it, it doesn't seem to dignify it with being a thing yet. It's just an eight memoir for when I come back to actually start trying to prepare to perform it. Okay, so... Uh... What I tried to do, I thought I'm going to be really artsy and I'm going to do the whole thing analogue, I'm not going to use computers at all. So I tried to make posters and make it into sections and put the stuff from the notebook and, you know, because the stuff was scattered throughout the notebook. Uh, but I found that that was really laborious and took ages and it didn't really work. So what I then did was I put it into a Word document, I spent a weekend putting it all together. And that allowed me to put certain structural elements in, like, say, for instance, there's a bit at the beginning where I make fun of a a, a quote I had from a newspaper, surprisingly funny. I mean, obviously the joke is that funny is quite flattering, but surprisingly not so much. But then, you know, later in the show, there's a bit where I bring that back in as a, as a callback. And those things are a lot easier to do if you've got a word document, you juggle things about. Um, and then there's the rehearsing bit. Now, a lot of comics don't rehearse. But the bit I'm kind of interested in is the difficult bit, how you get from the notebook with the ideas in to actually be able to perform something for an hour and a half or whatever. So this is an interview with a comic called Jimmy McGee. The thing I think I'm most aware of being the most difficult part of generating material is to get those scribbles and actually work on them. There's a middle bracket. There's generate the idea, have the little idea, and then there's the final sort of doing an actual bit where you're performing it. But the middle bit is where you take your scribble and try and turn it into a piece of performable material with a point or with a central comic receipt rather than just an idea. So that, that's the difficult bit. Now... Uh, some comedians don't rehearse at all. Uh, for example, Jeremy Hardy said, I try to run things through in my head, but I don't rehearse saying things. And Al Murray said, I've never done that. I've never stood in front of a mirror, never rehearsed. I feel so stupid putting on the jacket and jumping around in my front room. I mean, it's not going to happen. And you'd think that maybe no comedians rehearse, but actually, Oliver Gillity acknowledges that I write them out and perform it to myself. And Alexi Sale, bizarrely, acknowledged that he has performed his whole show to his cat and his wife in the conservatory, which I think is a delightful image, especially if he does it at full performance energy. Uh, but obviously another way of doing it is sort of preview shows. So Harry Hill, for example, talks about doing 40 minutes, and the rules of engagement are that the audience know I'm floundering around trying to find out what's funny, so they give me a lot more rope, you know, a lot more leeway. And the Linda Smith thing you heard before was from, from a gig like that. But the problem with that, for me, is, as I articulate in the show, I'll play you a short clip from the show. The first thing is, right, when the comedians do a big show like this, when proper comedians do it, right, they do preview shows for weeks or months first, trying out material with all the 
to try. Uh, but I don't have the kind of following which would allow me to do a shit version of the show first. <laughs> I've just got you. Thanks for coming. But you know, you don't want to come more than once. That's what. So yeah, you get the idea with that. Um, but it occurs to me that, that actually the, the process of comedy writing is not dissimilar from stand-up comedy. And in the, the book I mentioned earlier from the 1970s, the interviews with American comedy writers, uh, a writer called Norman Lear says, you talk when you're actually working on the script, you get yourself a tape recorder. That idea of being in a room and talking to yourself, I think that's a really interesting and difficult thing to do. And he also talks about a middle section, a bit like what Jimmy McGee mentioned, that a long, long period, seemingly endless, which I identify as shit in the head. That's the way I describe it to myself. It's something like a sound, and I'm afraid nothing is going to come through this morass, nothing is going to escape or break through, and I can't motivate myself to do anything, least of all write. But I feel like I should be writing every second of it. And that's how the process felt to me as I was trying to put my show together. So there's another excerpt from the podcast here, uh, which is about rehearsing. The point is that stand-up is something you do, not alone, but with an audience. And without an audience, it's very, very difficult to rehearse. And what it makes you feel is this is all unfunny. When I did my first and only previous full-length stand-up show, St Pancreas, back in 2006, I remember thinking to myself, this whole bit, there might be no laughs whatsoever. This whole show, there might be no laughs whatsoever. And I must admit that, that even though when I was writing this, every time I wrote something in my notebook, I'd be going, oh, yeah, that's going to be brilliant. Actually speaking it through so that I can get it into my head is torturous because it's making me go, well, that's not very funny. And that's not very funny. It's like I'm imagining that there's an actual audience there, but they're sitting there in appalled silence. But it's a necessary evil. So, uh, yeah. Lear also talks about a wonderful period, also physical, which could last for a week or a month, when everything is going so well, it's just, well, the only way to describe it is one extended orgasm. Everything is gushing, everything is just gushing. When the muse is with you, once you're at this point, you just keep going and going, all the difficult problems are behind you. I think we recognise, as creative people, those moments of fluidity when everything, actually that's the right word as well, isn't it, in what you just said, those moments where it all starts to work. In stand-up, that bit has to be the moment where you perform. So you have to go through the torture of shit in the head so that you get to the wonderful period. And finally, I'm going to finish with this. The creative process of making a show can become part of the show. So somebody said to me, I've got a big metal bit in my leg now, which will always be with me. And somebody said to me, wouldn't it be funny if you got one of those things from like airport security and actually did that? And I thought, that'd be great. And I went online and I found one. It was $29.99. And then, well, I'll, I'll, I'll play you the bit from the show. This, I said after this, I'm like, it cost £29.95. And I thought, I'll do that, I'll think of loads of jokes. <laughs> and uh, and, and that would be brilliant. And, and it took ages to come up, oh, what if it doesn't come up? And I thought, what if it doesn't work? And I like, oh yeah, that works. I said, you have to write some jokes. Could you think of any? £29.95. Well, I did, I did, uh, I said, <laughs> so yeah, um, and then finally, I'll just finish with this. 
to the actual process of creating the podcast also contributes to material to the show. So one of the things I did was, I was trying to remember back things, things that had happened around the accident, and I interviewed both of my kids, uh, Joe and Tom, about it, and then I put that into the show. So you'll hear bits from the show, and then I'll finish with the actual bit that went into the final performance. Emotional tears moments. They were, uh, it was quite entertaining, uh, if, if a little disconcerting. So he was talking about the fact I cried a lot. And he, he, his description was it was quite entertaining, a little disconcerting. And then what Tom said was this. I wanted to make fun of you pretty much from the start of it, but um, the only thing that really stopped me is because I thought you wouldn't take it very well. I thought you'd stop crying and I'd feel really bad. <laughs> um, yeah, so as soon as we found out that, I think it was probably Joe who discovered that you're a bit more resilient than you let on. Uh, yeah, we both kind of pounced on the opportunity, to be honest. There's a lot of material there. paper this could be the final ever episode of breaking a leg but we'll just have to see uh, there might be more things to say about it in the future if there are i'll do more episodes if there aren't bye and thanks for listening